Well, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Awesome. Hey, it's great to be with you today. Uh, as you probably have already noticed, my name is not Pastor Mac Richard. Uh, Pastor Mac is actually speaking at another church that we are really close with in Las Vegas, Central Christian Church, Pastor Judd Wilhite. Uh, awesome church. We're grateful to know them and grateful for the opportunity that he has to speak into the life of their church today. And this morning, I'm with you today. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Derek. I am the worship pastor here. So kind of used to being in this position on Sunday mornings, but today with a little bit of a different perspective, uh, I'm honored to be sharing the word as we wrap up the series that we've been in the past couple weeks called Skill Set, in which we have been looking at developing different spiritual skills in our lives. And today, the spiritual skill that we're gonna be looking at is developing the skill of worship. Developing the skill of worship. And before you check out, uh, because I think many of us would say that we know what worship is, I wanna encourage you, maybe challenge you to stay engaged because it may not be what you think it is. In fact, transparently for you guys today, one of the disclaimers that I have is a lot of what I'm gonna share this morning is actually things that I learned about worship in the past couple of weeks as we have been preparing for this and studying for this. And so if you want to learn about worship, the opportunity is here this morning. would encourage you to, to dive in, to stay engaged. And we're gonna learn a little bit about what to do, what not to do when it comes to worship. And in order to set up our conversation for this morning, I wanted to ask a question. And that question is, how many of you have ever played or maybe heard of the game called the newlywed game? Who's heard of the newlywed game? All right, that's a lot of us in the room. We are gonna have some fun with this this morning. We're gonna play a version of this game together today. And if you've not heard of the game, the way that it works is you play as a team with your spouse or if you're dating your, you know, your significant other. And I'll say this, if your spouse is not in the room this morning or if you are single, you have lucked out today because you get to just sit back and relax and watch how uncomfortable everyone else gets with some of these questions that we're gonna go through. And the way that we're gonna play today is I'm gonna ask a question and you're gonna think about the way that you would answer this question for yourself. All right, not the way that your spouse would answer, but think about how you would answer it for yourself and then, but don't say it out loud. On the count of three, you're gonna turn to your spouse and you guys are gonna answer. And if you have the same answer, then you're gonna get a point. This is how the game works. Is everybody tracking with me? Are we ready, ready to try this out this morning? Okay, here is the first question. First question of the newlywed game that we're gonna play today. Where was your first date? So the two of you dating, where was your first date? So think about that. Don't say it out loud yet. Some of you may need a little bit longer than others. I'm seeing some blank stares happening in the audience here. Where was your first date? So think about that, lock it in, and go ahead and turn to your spouse or significant other on the count of three, one, two, three. Go ahead and reveal. Where was your first date? All right, now I know there's probably some conversation that's gonna be happening here. Feel free, continue to have this conversation. While you do that, I just wanna see a show of hands. Who got the question right, or at least it was the same? All right, it was less than the first service, I'll tell you that. There's, maybe people were dating a little earlier on in the first service, it's easier to remember. If you got it wrong, there's some hope for you this morning because we got another question. Question number two, of the two of you, which one is the better driver? 
of the two of you, which one is the better driver? Now, you probably don't need as long to think about this question. I think everybody's got it locked in. So go ahead and turn to your spouse, and between the two of you, on the count of three, one, two, three, reveal who's the better driver. And feel free to discuss and argue. There is some arguments breaking out here. We may have a fist fight happening back here in this area. And as you discuss, let's do show of hands again. How many got that question right? How many of you agreed on who was the better driver? Actually, surprisingly, that's, that's most, yeah, most of you, I think, would, would say that. that. That's great. Well, hey, if you didn't get either of those right, we've got one more opportunity for this morning. We've got one last question. And before we answer this question, I need to pause here for a second because this question that we're about to answer, uh, my wife, Ashley, and I, we played this game uh, really early on in our marriage, maybe six months after being married. And uh, next month, we will have been married 14 years and we still, thank you. We still to this day, 14 years later, talk about this question that was asked in the newlywed game within the first six months of our marriage. And we're gonna, we're gonna go through this question together today. And here it is. Out of the two of you, which one is the most handy? So think handyman, think who's gonna fix something that goes wrong at your house. Who's gonna mount the TV? Who's gonna try to figure out why there's water coming out from underneath your fridge or your washing machine? Which one of you is the most handy? Think about that. Go ahead and turn to your spouse. I'll count of three. One, two, three. Who is it? Between the two of you, who's the most handy? Now, show of hands for that question. Who got that point right? Yeah, basically everybody except me in this situation. Because what happened in this game that we were playing is I'm thinking, you know, hey, it's handyman for a reason, right? <laughs> Obviously, me as the man of the relationship am surely gonna be the most handy between the two of us, right? And I think everybody in this room knows where this is going. When we get to the reveal of our questions, Ashley in front of everyone else that we're playing with reveals that she is in fact the most handy between the two of us. And we had some discussion and some arguing, and I walked away with a little bit of a wounded pride. And again, we still talk about this and still argue about this to this day, 14 years later. But I need to make an admission this morning, and I think this is the first time that I will have ever made this admission anywhere to anyone, my wife included, and that is that she was right. Right When she answered that question early in our marriage, I didn't know how to do anything. It was all I could do to hang a picture straight on the wall. I didn't want to believe that, so I didn't answer it that way. And maybe I should have answered a different way. We would have scored some more points, and my pride wouldn't have been as wounded. But that was the story of us playing the newlywed game. Now, you may say, what in the world does this have to do with worship? And I'm going to say, we're going to get there in just a minute. Before we do... I wanna give us just a ground level definition of what it is that we're talking about. Again, because many of us would say that we know what worship is. Uh, we see a lot of examples in the Bible of what worship is. And so we're gonna just level the playing field. This is what we're talking about this morning. Uh, the word worship comes from an old English word called worthship, worthship. And what worthship means is to ascribe the highest value to something or to someone. And so when we are worshiping, what we're doing is we are ascribing the highest value to God for who he is, but 
we're not just ascribing that with our mouth or with our words or with our singing or with what we do together before a message on a Sunday. We are living a life that demonstrates how much God is a value to us in our lives. And one of the best, if not the best definitions in the Bible of what worship is comes out of Romans chapter 12. And this is where we're gonna start with uh, today. Romans chapter 12, verse one says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your true and proper worship. So it says living sacrifice. According to Romans 12, the way in which we live, everything that we do in life, provided that it is holy and pleasing to God, is worship, right? The way that we live before God because of the value that we ascribe to him is worship. And so if that's the case, then why are we talking about worship in a series called Skill Set? Is worship a skill? And I'm gonna argue that it is, and the reason is because skills need to be developed. I believe worship needs to be developed And going back to the newlywed game, going back to the handyman story, uh, here's the good news for me, right? I made the admission that I, at the time, knew nothing. I was not a handy person. And yet, the good news is I learned a little bit, right? I have become a little bit better. I have improved and developed those skills. I believe worship is the same because if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I think one of the things that we can all agree on is that when we first met Jesus, We didn't know what to do next, right? We didn't know the next step to take. We didn't know how to develop and live this life of worship. And yet, if you've been following Jesus for a while, over time, you learn and you develop. And some of that is intentional and some of that is just over time. And today, I wanna dive into intentionally what does it look like to develop a lifestyle of worship. And we're gonna go deep and uh, we're gonna take a look at this. And for me, Uh, when I am trying to figure out how to do something. Maybe it's to learn how to fix something at home or maybe it's to work on a skill or a hobby. Uh, YouTube is a game changer, right? I don't know how anybody knew how to do anything or fix anything before YouTube, right? It's like you had to read a book or look at the manual, right? YouTube's a game changer. And for me, uh, one of the things that I like to do, I don't actually start with the how-to videos most times. Most of the times I like to start with the what not to do videos when I'm trying to figure something out, right? This is often more entertaining and more uh, informational sometimes. How not to deep fry a turkey is a way better video to watch than how to deep fry a turkey. I think many of us would agree. And we're gonna take that approach uh, this morning and we're gonna start with, before we move on to how to develop skills of worship, we're gonna look at the what not to do when it comes to how to approach our worship. And we're gonna look at the Bible at a couple examples of, uh, we're gonna call this four kinds of worship that are unacceptable to God. Four kinds of worship that are unacceptable to God. We're gonna look at how these play a part in our lives. And I'll say this, you may find yourself sometimes in this uh, you know, category, and you may feel a little bit of, of this, of ooh, that feels heavy or uncomfortable. And I think that's great because I think those are great indicators of God wanting to maybe press on your spirit somewhere and say, hey, this may need adjusted here. So pay attention to that as we go through. We're gonna start with number one. The first kind of worship that is unacceptable to God is worshiping of false gods. Worshiping of false gods. Now, this one seems like a pretty obvious one. 
And yet, what we see in the Bible, it was not obvious to the Israelites who were God's people. This is the one that they struggled with the most, uh, which interestingly enough, it's the one that God speaks to them about the most, right? If you think about, it's the first commandment that they get when Moses comes down from the mountain, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And yet we see time after time, we see generation after generation, they get pulled into the worship of false gods, and we see the consequences that result from that. Now, what does that mean for us? Because I would be willing to bet that there's not very many of us in this room that are struggling with worshiping some idol that we've carved out of wood and set up in our backyard that we worship every day. Uh, Not saying that's out of the realm of possibilities, but I'm saying most of us are not struggling with that one. So what does it mean for us to worship false gods? Well, here's the reality. We all have things in our life that are going to compete with where we place our highest value. Again, going back to that worth-ship definition, where does our highest value go? We all have things that are important to us. And so even right now, I want you to think about those things. And and they may not be bad things. What are the things in your life that are important to you? What are the things that you get the most excited about? What are the things that you maybe stress out about the most because of how important they are? Uh, What are the things that you think about every single day? I think these are great indicators for what is the most important to us. And if you're looking for a takeaway from this point this morning, I want you to think about this week, as those things begin to come up in your mind, how are you submitting those things to God to make sure that he stays as the highest value of your life? Because we see here, when that gets out of order, those things become false gods in our life. And so that is number one. The second area or kind of worship that we see that is unacceptable to God is worshiping the true God, but in a wrong form. Worshiping the true God, but in a wrong form. And we see a great example of this with the Israelites in the book of Exodus chapter 20. What happens in Exodus 20 is they receive the 10 commandments. We talked about the first one in the first point. And the second commandment that they get says this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So in Exodus 20, the people get the command. What's the command? The command is do not make an image to worship. Now, if we fast forward 12 chapters to Exodus chapter 32, it does not take very long. What do we see happen? They make an image to worship, right? It took them 12 chapters only to disobey the way that God had instructed them to worship. This is the story of the golden calf. And what happens is Moses goes back on the mountain to meet with God and the people say, man, he's been up there for so long. We don't know what happened to Moses. So we don't even know if he's coming back down. We need a God to worship. And it says this in Exodus chapter 32, In verse three, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, they brought them to Aaron, and he received all the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, I wanna notice a couple things about this. I want you to notice first that they said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. So even though it doesn't seem like it, they are worshiping the true God, right? They are acknowledging that it was God that brought them out of Egypt. They didn't get out of Egypt on their own. 
And even Aaron, when he speaks about God, he references the Lord, which is the same as we see the Lord in any other place in scripture. And so they are acknowledging and they are worshiping the true God, and yet they're doing it in the wrong form of a golden calf. And so what does this mean for us? Because again, I don't think many of us have a golden calf set up in our house. We're not reading this story and thinking, man, this applies to me directly here. But what does it mean for us to worship the true God in a wrong form? And here it is. It is any time we would try to shape God to fit or line up with our beliefs rather than starting with who God is and what his word says and then lining our beliefs to fit up with that. That's a, that's a big thing. There's a lot here. I'm going to say it again. It's anytime we try to shape or fit God to line up with what we believe rather than starting with who God is and what his word says and then lining up our beliefs to fit that. And so in other words, you could say it's, it's when I choose to believe X, Y, or Z and you fill in the blank. It could be a political belief. It could be a social belief that you have. It could be a belief on justice. It could be a belief on what you think sin is or isn't or who God is or who God isn't. When you would say, hey, I believe this, and because of that, now I'm gonna look for a way to bend God and his word to line up and support my belief rather than starting with who God is and then bending and submitting your beliefs to who he is. And here's the reality for today. And this sounds heavy. This is something in our culture that unfortunately is prevalent um, across our culture. And, and many Christians will say, hey, I'm gonna try to get God to line up with what I believe in this, uh, in this world and it doesn't work that way. Anytime that we do that, we see this happen and it becomes worshiping the true God in a wrong form. And the reality is this morning that God will not be bent or shaped to anybody else, right? The Bible says that he is who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we figure out a way to line up and submit what we believe to him, that's where we live out worship in truth. And this is uh, if we do it the other way, an unacceptable form of worship. The third kind of worship we're gonna talk about today that is unacceptable, number three, worshiping the true God in a self-centered way. Worshiping the true God in a self-centered way. We don't have a ton of time to camp here, but what this means for us is this is when we put ourselves at the center or at the top of our worship in terms of comfortability. This is worshiping in a way that's comfortable for you or maybe coincides with your schedule or your goals or your dreams in life. This is worship uh, in the way that you want to do it, not necessarily the way that God asks. And one of the greatest examples in the Bible, stories in the Bible uh, on this is in Genesis chapter four, and you can read this for yourself later, but Cain and Abel, if you're familiar with this story, Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord. The Bible says that God accepts Abel's offering because he brings the first and the best of what he has, which is the way that God asks us to worship with our first, with our best, with the living sacrifice that we talked about in Romans 12. And we see Cain, on the other hand, his offering gets rejected by God because the Bible says that he brought some of what he had. He didn't bring the first, he didn't bring the best, he brought some. And what Cain was saying here is, I'm not gonna worship in the way that God is asking of me because it's too hard or it's too uncomfortable or it's gonna cause too much work on my end. Cain says, I'm gonna worship in the way that I want to do it. And if you read Genesis chapter four, you see a consequence that he gets that this is a form of unacceptable worship as well. So that was pretty self-explanatory. 
And the last kind of unacceptable worship that we're gonna talk about today, number four, worshiping the true God with the wrong attitude. Worshiping the true God with the wrong attitude or wrong heart. And one of the most impactful scriptures uh, or passages of scripture for me on worship actually comes out of Amos chapter five because as we're gonna see in a second, this is a passage when I read, I say to myself, I never want to be here. I never want to hear what we're about to see from God. And what's happening in Amos chapter five is that God is really going off on his people, the Israelites, because of the fact that they were living in sin and yet at the same time, they were continuing to offer their spiritual and outward practices of worship. And God says this in Amos chapter five, starting in verse 21. This is gonna be pretty strong here. He says, I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Now, that's a heavy passage, and the reason why this is heavy is because, again, they are offering the first and the best of their materials, right? The Bible says that they are offering their choice grain offerings, their fellowship offerings. They're bringing the best of their materials, but they're not bringing the best of their hearts. And we see this continued in the New Testament with the Pharisees, and this is Jesus' biggest issue that he has with the Pharisees is that on the outside, they were doing all the right things, They were offering their worship, and yet on the inside, their hearts were far from God. They did not even recognize Jesus because of how far away their hearts were from God. Now, what is this for us? This is a big one for us. This is any worship out of obligation. This is worshiping out of obligation rather than a genuine love for God. So that kind of manifests itself in in legalism or ritualism. Uh, This can be you know, showing up to church on Sunday to check the box because this is just something that we do as Christians, worshiping out of obligation rather than a true love for who Jesus is, what his word says, and again, that living sacrifice that I am going to make my life about worship to God. And we see here in the way that he responds to the Israelites that this is an unacceptable form of worship. Okay, now we're pretty much done with all of, again, this is the what not to do. This is the heavy stuff, right? And again, I want you to think about in each of those categories, is there something that God's trying to press in me on in one of those to kind of alter the way in which I've approached worship? But with the remaining bit of time that we have this morning, let's look at, well, what does acceptable worship mean, right? If that was the way not to do it, what is the how-to on how we are supposed to worship? Uh, If you have a Bible, we're gonna go to John chapter four, And we're gonna read a short story here that's gonna walk us through the way that Jesus instructs us to worship. John chapter four, starting in verse four. Now he, Jesus, uh, we're talking about Jesus here and another character that we're gonna meet in a second. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Joseph's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So what's happening here is Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well. And we need to pause here for a second because I wanna unpack just a little bit of the background that's happening. We saw a little bit of it in that last sentence. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. What's that mean? Well, here's kind of the background summary of what's happening here up to this passage. There was a point in history where the nation of Israel gets attacked and invaded uh, by the Assyrians. And what happens is the Assyrians conquer Israel, they capture the people of God, and they carry off the majority of the Israelites or the Jews. And at the same time, they don't capture and carry off everybody. They leave behind the poorest and the weakest of the Jews in Israel, anybody who is not gonna benefit them. They leave them behind, and what happens over time is other nations in the area start to inhabit the nation of Israel. They start to intermarry with the Jews that were left behind, and the offspring from these marriages were the Samaritans, named after the capital city of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were mixed in their race, right? So they're part Jew, but they're also part other nations. They're mixed in their race, but they're also mixed in their religion because they had some elements of Judaism that remained 